Seth, you have to listen to me. You're afraid to dive into the plasma pool, aren't you? You're afraid to be destroyed and recreated, aren't you? I bet you think that you woke me up about the flesh, don't you? But you only know society's straight line about the flesh. You can't penetrate beyond society's sick, gray fear of the flesh. Drink deep or taste not the plasma spring. See what I'm saying? No, I'm not just talking about sex and penetration. I'm talking about penetration beyond the veil of the flesh. A deep, penetrating dive into the plasma pool. Right now. Hello there and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am John Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. And this is episode Disney Plus. Disney Plus Day. <laughs> we, uh, we got a sponsor. Yeah. We got not, one sponsor. It's not Disney Plus. Disney, oh, it's Could not you imagine? Disney. That'd be good. Just Disney's the only one that sponsors us. We've been watching you guys. Yeah. We, we love your 50 <laughs> listeners that you have. We love your, your Oscar nominations episode. Yeah. <laughs> just, that's we them. love it a lot. It's <laughs> just <laughs> We keep playing it. We really like the thoughts you had on Beautiful Boy. Well, you know what actually occurred to me? I wondered if it was getting a bunch of traction from people before I saw that it was coming from, like, I don't know what the hell's going on with it, but I thought it was because I tagged Joaquin Phoenix in it for the Sisters Brothers, and I was like, oh, are people just typing in Joaquin <laughs> Phoenix to hear Joker stuff, and they're getting that? And they're just like, well, gotta listen, I guess. Um, and then they listen for a second, they're like, wait a minute, this is like a year old. Oh, if only we could read descriptions. They, they seem vaguely indifferent to these other two movies. They stay. They they come for Joaquin Phoenix and the Joker. They stay for Beautiful Boy. Yeah. What was the third movie reviewed that one? Leave No Trace. Ah. Oh. Yeah. Which was fine. I liked him. I like Thomas and Mackenzie and Ben Fon. They had good performances and it was fine. Yeah. I think me and you. I liked it, and you just were like, "It's fine." I it happens a lot with movies. I think that's going to happen in our special episode. No, I don't, it's not going to happen at all in our special episode. Okay. I, I, regardless of how I feel about the movies, I have strong feelings about them. They're not like, they're not just kind of like that's a thing that happened. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. So, so we might just get angry. Might be yeah, I mean, we're going to start this that fight, episode. This fight. We're going to start that episode by by reciting a uh, a promise to maintain be friends at the end of it. What's great though, Tom, is me and you will not be drunk during these episodes, as has happened in the past with some of these episodes. Not drunk, just a. Uh, well, excusing the um, the uh, Claire Denis episode where yeah. we decided rum was a great idea. Hey, hey, that excusing episode was three and a half hours long. <laughs> excusing that, you know, there's some episodes where we've been a little lightheaded because of uh, the high ABV beers. And today, since I am not drinking during the regular week um, and try not to drink as much on weekends either, uh, we are delving into a month of local beers. From Athletic Brewing, known for their beers that contain less than 0.5% alcohol by and volume. Where are they out of? They're, They're from Stratford, Connecticut. Stratford, right. So very close. Good old farm-to-table, non-alcoholic beer. Mm-hmm. Started out as kind of the beers that would be offered during like sporting events. You know, like after races sure, or yeah, fighting yeah. events, people always drink beer. Sometimes people want a beer, but they uh, don't want to get a buzz. Mm-hmm. And this will be perfect. Uh they have four or five different beers. We're going to go through their litany of beer options. Uh, hopefully, I'm able to track down all of them. I 
have access to four. If you can't, let me know. I'll try, try to find the fifth. Find one, yeah. um, the first one, I feel since we're finally, it's starting to get cold outside, so it feels like yeah. autumn is transferring in the winter very quickly. They said this is going to be a warm winter. <sighs> not, not, to, not like today. It. Not the last, like, three or four days. I got half a take of gas because I could not take it anymore. <laughs> um, it is their autumn brown stump oh, jump. Right. I don't know what that's about. Doesn't tell you. Doesn't tell you what it is. It's brewed with confidence, though. Good. Which is which is could, nice. Could you imagine brewed with apprehension? <laughs> brewed with apathy. <laughs> smells like a little like brown. Yeah, it's it's a light, very light. Ooh, that's that's good. Aye. Ugh, antivirus protection expired. Oh, no. Because I just drank a non-alcoholic I beer? I fixed it. The, the podcast goes to hell just because of, I yeah, that's pretty, it enjoy is a, this. It's a light brown. It's, I, it's got the brown taste. It feels like it's missing something, but I think that just might be a placebo. Um, I, I, yeah, you're right. I feel like this is one of those things where we need to not be thinking about what it is, and we'd probably feel okay, okay about it. Let's think about this. It's got 8% alcohol by volume. No, it's still. You know what's missing? It's missing like a crispness that I expect from a lot of like browns. You know, kind of like not that necessarily the alcoholic bite, but it's like um, a multi bite. It's it's slightly missing that, but it's still pretty refreshing. Yeah, it is refreshing. Is actually a really good word because it's, it's got not not fruitiness. No, no. But there is a there's a thing. Oaty. It's oaty. Yeah. It's got like, it's got like a toasted oat flavor to it. Which is which is toasted pleasant. oats? Maybe I'll have to investigate this throughout the course of the episode. <laughs> you'll be talking on this. Ah, I got it. <laughs> you know, I really like your opinion on that movie there, Mario. But might I say that this beer more tastes like baked bread? It's not oats. It's a tea. Mm. It's got a little bit of a tea flavor. All right. Um, but like a fungal tea, like an earthy sort of tea. Yeah, it's not. It's yeah, it's not like a chamomile. No. Um, but it's it's got like a like a heavy tea flavor. But what? it's but not like heavy, not heavy where it's overpowering anything. But there's something, yeah, still earthy, but a different kind of earthy. I've had their IPA before, and I didn't love it. Um, so spoilers about maybe my opinion on that. But I really enjoy this. This is pretty nice. Yeah. You know, something. <laughs> Something that I didn't enjoy, and that isn't very nice. Um, but you and me are going to have a different opinion on this. It is uh, we both went to see separately, separately the um, sequel to The Shining, Doctor Sleep. Not many ride the bus this far north. You're running away from something. for myself, I guess. Hi. You can hear me. You're magic. Like me. I don't know about magic. I was called it The Shining. The world is a hungry place. A dangerous place. These people, 
they hurt people like us. These empty devils, they'll eat what shines. So the novel Doctor Sleep uh, came out in 2014. 13? 14? I thought it was 14. Maybe it was optioned in 2014? 2013. 2013. Um, and I, we were both working at the bookstore, and I remember it being a really big deal that like The Shining was getting a sequel. And then yeah, I, it had to be 2013 because I remember it was like one of the last big books that came out. It was the winter the of 2013. When I worked at the library. It was 13, like late yeah. fall, yeah. yeah. And like everyone was like losing their shit over this book, which... My, I started it and I just could never. Yeah, I read it the, fir- it the first time I read it. I was like, "This is so unnecessary that it's it's really kind of clouding everything for me." And I just read it recently in, in preparation for this, for the movie coming out. And I was like, "It's pretty good." It's, you know, the the true not thing, which we'll talk about in a little bit, is is the wor- one of the worst things that Stephen King has ever come up with. But all the like all the sh- direct shining stuff. I thought it was pretty good. You know, what I didn't like about about the I couldn't get through with the book, and it just bothered me was the cat stuff. And actually, that's one of the big things I don't like about this movie. Just like all the cats, that cat thing. Yeah, but the cat pisses thing pisses me off. It seemed I don't cool. know why. When so stretched out and explained more, and when it has more of a feel to it, I think is works better. When in this novel, it's just like there's a cat. He knows when people are gonna die. On the movie. In the movie, yeah. yeah. Um, and then you see the cat a couple of times, and then you never see the cat again. Mm-hmm. Just like you see him with two dead people, and, and, and then you never see him do Dr. Sleep thing again. The him I'm talking about is Dan Torrance. He is played by Ewan McGregor. Um, he has you know, grown up to have a, a severe alcohol and drug problem, and when we, when we meet him, he is um, in bed in mattress with sheet on it and covered in vomit with a woman. Uh, they were out late drinking. They bought a bunch of Coke. He wakes up. She threw up in the bed. He doesn't have any more money, and so he steals her money. But then a baby comes out and he gives the babies a, a bag of Cheez-Its, puts it on the bed, and then and then cuts out of there. He ends up in New Hampshire where he meets Billy Freeman, who... who takes him in billy freeman's played by cliff, cliff curtis, curtis who i like always and like cliff he's curtis. one of those guys that you see him and you're just like, like oh what's that yeah. guy's name what's that guy's name what's that guy's name oh yeah cliff curtis oh i always know it's cliff curtis yeah i know i, I now i will never forget it but yeah cliff curtis now if you have a trivia question about cliff curtis you got it locked down there you go and i felt yeah i felt bad for cliff curtis he deserved to go the way he went um in real life in another part of the country there is a group of, of wandering travelers named the True Knot, led by Rose the Hat, played by Rebecca Ferguson, who is always wearing a, a, a hat. Because she's Rose the Hat. And big shirts. I mean, and, 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 and it is in the nicest, nicest trailer, nicest Winnebago ever in the history of the universe, um, which is from the book. She has a very nice Winnebago in the book. Um... They are they hunt people who shine, and they kill them painfully, purifying their shine, and then they eat that shine, which comes out of people in the form of like a breath. And it can only be former Best Supporting Actor nominees. Yeah, poor Jacob Tremblay, <laughs> <laughs> poor guy. In that podcast I told you I was listening to before, it was um, the the Big Picture of the Ringers movie podcast, and he was like. He said what I said watching the movie, which was like, there's got to be like 25 extra minutes of this Jacob Tremblay. Torture. Like, not, not him torturing, but like some 
like a backstory for him. Like it can't just start with like the baseball game. It's there's probably way more Jacob Tremblay stuff. It was the Predator. The Predator was a prequel. That yeah. yeah. You think so? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but yeah, I just <laughs> I just feel bad for him. He just keeps having to do this stuff. And Good Boys. So apparently he's great in Good Boys. Does this happen to him in that too? I don't think so. The other boys they murder him. <laughs> yeah. Um, the true not gets a gets a whiff of this. This power, super powerful shine from also coming from New Hampshire. It's from this girl named Abra, played by Kylie Curran, um, who also has a a, a a a relationship with Dan. They've been sending messages to each other for years, like a pen pal. Um, but they're coming to get her, and Dan has got to stop it. And then. Bunch of people die, which is just kind of how this movie works, because they got to get to Colorado. And this movie is not a direct sequel to Stephen King's book, The Shining. It is a direct sequel to Stanley Kubrick's film, The Shining. So they go back to the Overlook. And we'll talk in about the book. The Overlook's burnt. The Overlook's gone. And, so they go to the place where the, the Overlook, Overlook was. was. But it's like a... Where there's like a camp like an overwatch and what, yeah. like the, the overlook and the and overlook, like an actual like park overlook. Yeah, there's right? like, like a like campground and there's a place where you can go and kind of look at the mountains, like a scenic view type thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's true to form. They end up there, and then you know Dan walks back through you know uh, the overlook. He has a weird conversation with Henry Thomas. Did you know that was Henry Thomas? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, because I had seen Gerald's game and Henry Thomas's. He looks like part, that now. He's a big part of. Oh, okay. Henry Thomas plays Jack Torrance, but as Lloyd, the bartender, um, and he doesn't look anything like no. <laughs> Jack Nicholson. He even gets to he even gets to stumble around like, the Overlook a couple of times. What's great is you hear like like about this like James Dean thing where they're they're CGI recreating James Dean for a movie. It's just like just, they should have just done that with Jack Nicholson. CGI James. Oh, <laughs> I even CGI James Dean <laughs> oh, as yeah. Jack Nicholson. That'd be great. <laughs> James Dean playing Jack Nicholson, yeah, and Peter good. Cushing, um, just interchange him. Yeah, <laughs> Grand Moff Target just walks, <laughs> walks through, <laughs> and they just look. Um, yeah, and then you know they kind of ape some shots from from The Shining, which I kind of thought was clever and also disgusting at the same time. You know when like. Dan's backing up the stairs with the axe, and Rose is oh, kind it's of so—it's unnecessary. It's so on the nose and stupid, and and, he, and then he hits her with I the axe. I mean, from a set design like part, like from actual like set design, the reconstruction of, of some yeah, of the shots, it looks good, and like a lot of this movie does look good. Um, but there's parts where you're just like, oh, I want like for the first two hours, it's its own thing, kind of. Kind of, yeah. Um, Pretty much, and then it just stops being its own thing, and is like, hey, remember that movie? Mm-hmm. Um, I, and then it ends eventually. I, um, texted Mario while I was watching this movie and I said, have you seen this movie yet? And, and he was just like, yeah, I remember we talked about it. And I, and I was like, oh yeah, you said we would disagree about it. And then the text I said, sent him afterwards was that if I wasn't so interested in seeing how they resolved this shining thing, I would leave. And that was like an hour and a half into the movie. And that was after they killed, um, Billy. Jacob Tremblay's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. character. What's his name? I forget his name. The baseball Bradley player. Trevor. Yeah. And so, like, it wasn't even like I like I was so upset by that. This, I said on this podcast, I think 
I definitely said it to you a bunch of times. I probably said it to JP. I'm pretty sure I said it on this podcast. The thing that I wanted them to not do with this book was to just leave a bunch of it intact and not extract the meaning from it and make a coherent film out of the meanings. So Stephen King had a really good idea, I think, to make Dan Torrance really like a ruined person. Like he spent his whole life trying to submerge The Shining underneath drugs and alcohol and women and everything he can he could put in front of it, he would do it. Um, and then make the book about... The book ultimately is about like his own personal redemption. Not the personal redemption that comes from... From what happened at the Overlook, but a redemption from the moment that they left the Overlook to like the moment when he decides he needs to redeem himself. You know what I mean? Mm. From the moment that he takes that that money from that that woman and leaves the baby um, with the Cheez-Its on the vomity bed, like those two things are like the bookends of his life, and he needs to. Um, refashion himself like from the ashes of that experience and that's what the that's what the book is about and so that's where you get like the doctor's sleep stuff his like all those moments in the book where he's helping someone like pass on to the other side you get all these moments of atonement they're not anything in this movie it's just to justify calling it doctor's sleep everything in this movie is extraneous which is a problem because that means there's nothing left for it to be extraneous to. It's just <laughs> everything here is not in service. It's not doing service of anything. It's all just, and it's uh, like one of the things I wanted to do, and I forgot to text you about it. It was like I wanted to talk about this Martin Scorsese essay thing, and then Richard Brody's response to the Martin yeah, Scorsese I've read any of that, but... essay thing. I read Richard Brody's response I, because I don't have a subscription to the New York Times uh, online. I've used up all my free articles, and they seem to be on to the fact that I keep clearing my history so I can read more stuff. Um, have you tried going incognito <clears throat> mode? Does that help? I don't know. I have not tried that. I don't really use incognito for anything, because I find it suspicious. I really... Me and my phone are not very close friends recently, so... Um, the movie business is, seems so obsessed with IP that they don't even really give a shit if we're making anything that makes any sense. So I think there's stuff in this movie that works, not in terms of the movie, but just it like, looks kind of cool. You know what I mean? Like, that was a good idea, or that shot was really nice, or like, this sequence was pretty nicely put together. Um, but it's not because it doesn't do anything to help this movie be good or make sense. It's just cool. Like, Rose the Hat like like watching the world spin vertically like in like going through the clouds is really a cool thing it was interesting but then she flies and then i don't care anymore <laughs> um and then even then when they get to the shining stuff all that stuff looks bad like I thought it was so funny when they were, you know, when they show the opening shot of The Shining, but now it's dark and it's made by computers. Yeah. The whole thing's made by computers. And Ewan McGregor walks up to the Overlook and it's just him walking on front of a green screen, like up to a computer generated Overlook. And they've got the, like the aspect ratio all wrong. It's like, oh my God. Like, yes, Stephen King may have massive problems with, like the Stanley Kubrick movie, but the Stanley Kubrick movie is in its way 
a masterpiece, even if you don't like it. It is it is a culture, I don't know anybody who doesn't like that. It's movie. a cultural touchstone. You know what I mean? Like it is it is the yeah, thing. Yeah, somebody as somebody who vehemently dislikes that movie, I respect what it. Yeah, did. and he made it, and now we're in this we're in this period of history where you don't have to make anything, and it doesn't have to be any good. It can just be like here's a bunch of stuff that happens. Wasn't that super scary? And it's attached to this IP, so you have to pay us. Forty million dollars, or it's a it's a box office flop. I mean, which <laughs> which it is, which it was. That's <laughs> worse than forty million. But I feel like I'm. It got it has like a seventy four percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and where does that come from? For me, it's it's ultimately kind of like a piece of fluff. It does feel really extraneous. But those moments that kind of look good are kind of. It's tonally consistent, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has, like, solid performances all around. Like, people are actually trying in this, which is kind of odd. Yeah, and I feel like it made me feel weird. Because, like, I wasn't sure what why they were trying. Yeah, no, exactly. Because um, it is ultimately kind of just... For me, it just ended up being an entertainingly decent... Not really a horror movie, because it's, it's, I wouldn't even doubt to call it horror. There's aspects of things kind of on the side that would be necessarily horrific but it doesn't really do anything to kind of like portray itself truly as a horror movie no because it does so much effort in like giving the side of the true not like they almost in parts feel like the main characters themselves you know like we're gonna focus so much on the sense of like why they're doing what they're doing and their fears and trepidations about you know the reasons why they're kind of trying to collect the shine like it kind of does a lot to necessarily humanize them and um, so in that way, it, does, it's not, it doesn't feel so much like a horror. It just feels kind of like a chase movie, like a mm. midnight run sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I thought, that was, I thought it was fine. Like, it ultimately comes off as fine. And Mike Flanagan, for me, has been a pretty consistently good director. Mm-hmm. And there's some good shots in here. There's some really good, like, gore sequences. Like, that hand scene is fun. Hand scene is pretty good. He hates hands. <laughs> it's um, always, that's like a thing in his movies. But to, like, the degree of comparing it to, like, what he's done before, like, Gerald's Game, it doesn't feel like... There's necessarily a, a lot of control here. I think even giving its length, um, it's paced decently well. There's times where it kind of like lingers in that kind of like second act. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like a, something he made or something that that's like actually truly has has some sort of control to it. It does feel like kind of this thing that is created to make money. Yeah. In um, that said, though, I. You know, comparing it to the other two adaptations of Stephen King. I mean, this is why my expectations have been so, like, bottomed out this year. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, even the th- three I've seen, um, like, In the Tall Grass. Uh, in the Tall Grass? Was that what it's called? Um, it Chapter 2 mm-hmm. and Pet Cemetery. Like, at least this has some sort of tone to it. At least it's consistently an entertaining film. And so I kind of left there going like, oh, that was okay. Mm-hmm. That was fine. I don't feel like I wasted my time. I don't feel like this was in huge disservice to whatever story is being presented. I don't like this story necessarily, mm-hmm. but I don't. And so like, I would say I have a hard time, you know, criticizing those aspects just because I think the overall story of Dr. Sleep is ridiculous. Yeah. This entire chasing down and consuming the shine feels utterly stupid to me Mm -hmm. but making an adaptation of a story i think is dumb (laughs) um this is done competently 
And it's like yeah. this is this is a competent production. So it's, it do, it doesn't frustrate me. It doesn't anger me. If you're into Doctor, I mean, I guess if you're into like the continuation of Doctor Sleep or of The Shining, I think this does those things well. I think Flanagan's probably the right choice to have kind of recreated those images of The Shining if you felt a necessity or a need for a continuation, an extension of The Shining. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, you should just watch Room 237 because that's better than The Shining itself because fuck The Shining. <laughs> um, one of these days, we'll... I think we got into well enough into that with Room 237. Yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. episode about my well, disdain of, of The Stephen, Shining. In our Stephen King episodes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so, yeah, it's, it's, it is entertaining to me. There's, there's a lot more working for this film than working against it at least in comparison to the adaptations of Stephen King we've seen recently. Yeah, and I guess my problem is that I'm just coming at it, I'm coming at it from like a pure adaptation standpoint, and I'm stopped up. This beer up. is getting better. It's a little better, yeah. Um, and it started out pretty good. I get stopped, I've forgotten what we're drinking. Like, I've forgotten like the nature of what it is that we're drinking. I'm just kind of drinking it. <laughs> um, like I said before, the true not thing is one of the worst things that Stephen King has ever come up with in his whole life. And I think he gets really stuck... In this, I need to pit. I need to pit my hero against some, uh, not cosmic entity. Although they, I guess they, the true not could be considered because they've been well, around they, for so long or whatever. They, they kind of. Uh, I noticed that, that in this, and I don't know if that is touched upon Doctor Sleep, but there was like the entire line where like Cause Wheel is mentioned in this, and that like kind of like line. Yeah, and then there's it's the he's number nineteen on the team, and it's he. Takes the Tet transportation bus. So is that like... And there's Lamerc Industries. But is there like... Is there a real attachment in Doctor Sleep to... No. Dark Tower? Or is this nope. kind of... Just kind of thrown in there? Yup. Okay. Yeah. Mario. I, mean, I, I kind of I wondered that. Because I kind of saw that and I was like, oh, this is probably... Because somebody off. from Warner Brothers walked into <laughs> the you know a, a meeting one day and was like... Mm, Hey, Mike, we need to get... How many Easter eggs we have in here? People, the kids really like Easter eggs. Yeah, I, just, I didn't know if there was like some bigger part with the true knot no, tied to no, Dark Tower. But that's... You know... There's no... The thing that sucks about the whole true knot thing is that when you were reading The Shining, you weren't thinking to yourself like... Is that it's not a pretzel company? Yeah. The true knot pretzel company? Huh? <laughs> not the hop nut. No. Oh, um, God. Thank God. You weren't thinking to yourself, oh my God, I wonder if there's a whole culture of like people that shine. He kind of explained it that like lots of people have a shine. So the idea that there's like a group, like, and in the book it's a pretty big group and they get the measles and they all die from the measles. They don't all just get shot. And then they've had, some of them die of cancer later, like instantaneously in die of up. cancer in, in, um, Doctor Sleep, but in the parts of the yeah, because it's just supposed to be the like way that things catching up to them. Well, like no, because the it's well, so out. when they Bradley has is unvaccinated, so he has he carries he has he's the Jenny measles. He's kid. So yeah, he's Jenny McCarthy's kid. So he has the measles. So when they take in his steam, a bunch of them get the measles. What? And then, but this, shut this. up! It's just what it is. I'm just <laughs> telling you what happens in the book. I'm not. Let's not go into it. Are you but saying then, measles is some sort of like cosmic disease? I don't know. But no, because they're so old and their their systems are so fragile. I'm just getting there. But then later, so the way the book resolves itself in terms of like the true knot that just leaves Rose the hat is that um, Abra's grandmother, who they mention in the movie for literally no reason because she's a big part of the book and nothing in the movie, so why mention her? Um, 
she goes to that the um, retirement place that or not retirement place the hospice that Dan works at, and then Dan when she dies, Dan consumes her 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 um, her steam and then puts it in one of those boxes, and that steam has cancer in it, and then when he gets to the place where the true knot is in Colorado, he unleashes the cancer from the box and then blows it out into their faces and they all get cancer except for Rose the Hat who's not there. What do you think about that, Mario? What do you think about that? I don't know. Okay. But this is my problem is that Stephen King feels like he needs to pit these his heroes against this larger-than-life villainous force. And he doesn't trust himself I don't think anymore except for a couple of times here or there I think Revival is one of those times where for a little bit he trusted himself and then I got to the end 112263 was one of those times where he trusted himself to just the book can be the experience of one person trying to grow without having while experiencing something like extrasensory or extraordinary Without having to like make it a like someone's trying to kill me thing, and that's where I think this movie's I think where this book and this movie's flaw is is that he, Mike Flanagan, Flanagan probably recognized that and was probably unable to make a choice where he was going to leave a lot of this garbage out. And if he's going to leave a lot of this garbage in, he has to leave a lot of this garbage in. So like, there's no real reason for them to even get. Snake by Andy in the beginning of the movie because we've already we've met them why not just show them killing people like why bother showing us how you ritualize like ritually in, indoctrinate someone into the thing why bother saying we're turning them why bother trying to kind of half-assedly establish this mythology of this group if you're not going to actually establish the mythology of the group if it, if that mythology of the group is not going to matter because in the end um cliff curtis and ewan mcgregor are just going to shoot them all from behind trees you know what i mean yeah it just doesn't i, I i'm just so it's just so <laughs> it's so upsetting to me and i definitely shouldn't be so upset but i am and there's nothing I could do about it. It bums me out. I just find it, find it funny of an emotional response to this, and my response to it is just like it was a movie that I watched. I just, I'm really getting, I'm really getting frustrated with crap. I just, I'm, I'm finding it very hard to deal with. And I think it's the podcast's fault because, like, every week we watch at least two legitimately good movies, and then we watch all these other movies now because Oscar season and stuff like that. We're trying to go to the movies like all the time and see all the stuff. And I don't have time to waste on total fucking garbage. And this is like, it might be like real excited for the fantasy Island episode. Is that like a remake? Are they rebooting fantasy Island? They're making a horror movie based off of fantasy Island. Are they going to digitally insert Ricardo Montalban into it? It's Richard. It's Richard. It's a Michael Pena playing the Ricardo Montalban role. It's pretty good. I, I can do that. <laughs> can they give him Ricardo Montalban's face and just have Michael Pena do the voice? Now, this is going to be the conversation in every movie. Like, are they just going to digitally insert this person's face onto them? Ricardo Montalban faked his death. Everyone knows this. Do, do you think he did? Mm-hmm. Hmm. We have to do it. After we finish this podcast, 
Like the series of them. We'll do a conspiracy theory episode about uh, Ricardo a podcast Montalban. about Ricardo Montalban. Just about one. that, yeah. Yep. I mean, he, everyone thought he died a naked gun, but he yeah. clearly that wasn't him. No, it wasn't. All right. Well, <laughs> on that note, we'll be right back with our number forty ones. Uh, five or six weeks ago, we discussed that my top 50 is populated quite significantly by two directors, right? I think I said three directors, um, but two of them were kind of fundamentally the, the, the top of dogs. I, I think it was uh, Alfred Hitchcock mm-hmm. being the one, um, and he still has a few more to come up. Uh, but in terms of being in the top 50, and especially given the timeline, these directors would be the ones that kind of proliferated um, the my uh, vernacular of film. The the things that I enjoy, the things that I sl- want to, to yeah. have in film. The, when they are replicated or honored um, in other films, I find myself gravitating toward those mm-hmm. movies. And this particular director was during my oft-mentioned... Uh, early college years of, of building up my film vocabulary mm-hmm. um, was a director who I almost literally watched his entire filmography within the span of six months. And I struggled mightily <clears throat> with not putting almost all of those films somewhere <laughs> on this list. Um, give or take a few examples to be a quick spoiler and butterfly um, every single one of his movies hits me in a certain way. Existence, even. Mm-hmm. You know, for how silly of a little body horror video game movie it is. It was a real, <laughs> it's a funny sentence. real blast. Um, Dead Ringers was, was actually one that I, I really struggled with um, leaving off this list, but mm-hmm. it just ends up being more carried by its performance. Um, the, you know, the... Critically, well, I'd say critically overlooked because he didn't get an Oscar for it. For what? Uh, Jeremy Irons didn't get an Oscar for for Dead Ringer. Just ridiculous. I only saw Reversal of Fortune once, and comparing those two, Dead Dead Ringers is definitely better it's in terms maybe, of his performance. Maybe Reversal of Fortune is more subtle. Yeah, yeah. Dead Ringers <laughs> is definitely. If there's one thing that that this director um, does not have is, is subtlety. Hmm. It's the Canadian and then coming through. Canadians, all their maple syrup means they cannot be subtle. They're very ostentatious, and Canadians. As you consume more maple syrup, I've heard that it causes your body to uh, transmorphize mm-hmm. and maybe melt yeah. in various different ways. And uh, this director saw that probably firsthand. Yep. Um, I'm, of course, referring to David Cronenberg. And the first of his three films is probably, I would say, his most famous until was until uh, the history of violence eastern promises era of his filmography this film's probably still his his most I think it's still his most, most it's like his signature movie yeah it is the only film directed by his to uh, have ever won an oscar which is a fucking travesty yep. considering uh, other films we'll mention in his filmography coming up um maybe one didn't really wasn't an oscar movie but his spoiler alert, you already know History of Violence is on my list. That's a travesty. I think <laughs> that went in Oscars. Um, it won the Oscar for Best Makeup Effects 
and was one of the big films, big reasons why makeup became such a prominent thing in what I looked for in mm-hmm. film. I'm referring to the 1986 comedy, The Fly. There is a limit, even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. Where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. You are about to go beyond that limit. Seth Brundle, Jeff Goldblum, pretty eccentric, slightly crazed, and in the sense of his dedication to his work, mm-hmm. has been working hard on figuring out a way to create teleportation from one pod to another. He obviously hadn't read the jaunt yet and realized it's longer <laughs> than you think, Dad. It's longer than you think. He meets a not yet tainted by the accidental tourist Gina Davis <laughs> in a role that shows that Gina Davis uh, was actually a good actress, um, unlike the accidental tourist. Speaking of which, she has like a run of really good performances here. Yeah. She's pretty good in Fletch, Transylvania, 65,000, The Fly, Beetlejuice, Earth Girls Are Easy. And then th- then she does the accidental the movie tourist she and Oscar things go off the rails for her. Mm-hmm. Fuck that movie. Fuck you, Lawrence Kasdan. Oh, poor guy. Seth is, is obsessed with his work. He is attempting to teleport baboons. Um, one of those baboons ends up being like that boy from the old Nickelodeon cartoon and going over mm. the uh, swing and going inside out. Yeah. A little, little less pleasant looking than that. A little more of a less clay... Oh, man, what the hell is his name? Oh, that would have been a good reference. He's a claymation guy. Oh. He does some of the... Uh, he did the techno-war music video. I can't remember his name now uh, for Gunship. He does some really good gore claymation. Mm-hmm. Um, but then a second baboon is successfully teleported. Seth and Ronnie, Ronnie and Gina Davis, begin dating. And uh, he... You know, he has some inspiration, which leads to the successful teleportation of a baboon. And then uh, he kind of, you know, decides to uh, teleport himself. You know, she kind of, you know, is going to, you know, he really needs it it to be done perfectly. And um, he does. And it works out just well, just (laughs) great. From a standpoint it of does. being able to teleport yourself, yeah. teleport mm-hmm. a single item of matter, it is it works out well. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, his uh, QC was a little shitty, and he did <laughs> not have a means by which to determine that uh, something else maybe didn't enter the. Uh, well, he the saw pod. it, didn't he? I think he does, but then he doesn't like realize it until later. Yeah. You know, that, that great sequence where he. Like nice old 1980s RoboCop style, you know, computer graphics showing, ah, there's a picture of a fly in oh, this yeah. data matrix. <laughs> um, and he teleports himself with a fly. And he begins to notice himself gaining powers and transforming in certain ways and breaking arms and eventually vomiting up on a guy's hand and making him lose that hand. And he's realizes Ronnie, who's now pregnant, 
um, that they're going to make him one big family as he becomes more and more insane, his mind becoming, you know, further reduced to the pure kind of sexual, aggressive nature of the fly. Because mm-hmm. that is what a fly does. Yep. Um, he is unsuccessful in teleporting. Uh, the, the telepod is uh, that Ronnie's locked in is, you know, disabled mm-hmm. by a nice old one-handed shotgun blast. Stupid John Getz. Yeah. Oh, go back to another world soap opera, you dick. He ruins everything. I thought he was dead, by the way. He's he's not. I don't know why. All this time, I was like, oh, man, John Getz died young, didn't he? And I looked it up, I was like, he's no, still alive. No, every movie needs a jerk. I'm sure he still works steadily. Yeah. As the like jerk in, like, every movie <laughs> in the 80s. Um, and uh, he is, uh, Seth is, is, is fused with a telepod. And he quietly begs for the sweet release of death. Which he gets. Um, this film for me is 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 most notably on my list because it it is the thing that made me look at makeup effects and make me really. I mean, this and a movie that comes up way later. Um, uh, there's certain Steven Spielberg movie with makeup, a lot of good makeup effects hook. in its early part. Yeah, that's it's definitely Hook. <laughs> um, made me really appreciate practical effects and, and, and another Cronenberg movie which we'll be talking about in literally two weeks uh, does the same thing but this is a film that, that created an obsession with really good gore effects and mm-hmm. really concentrated effects and that has made me to this day stand by the idea that you know the Oscars have at one point said you know what yep we can really respond to that um, you know, it made me realize, like, why don't we still do that? Why are we giving, like, was it Golden Compass a makeup Oscar and not, um, you know, uh, not a, I think it was Golden Compass. Was it Golden Compass? I couldn't remember what one in 2004, not Passion of the Christ. For, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For, you know. I don't know if that was Golden Compass, but yeah. I don't think it was Golden Compass. It might have been. Golden Compass was another conversation we had. I, I think that one best. Snicket. Visual effects. It did win. It did win best visual effects. So it was, I think that's over something else. Something stupid. Um, but I think the. I mean, the amazing thing about these makeup effects is that they're all, um, they're so well done that like he can still act in them. Yeah, exactly. It's expressive. And I talked a few, you know, a while ago about the thing also being another movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That really kind of like grew my my appreciation of makeup effects. But this is different in that. He can act through them. And even that there's still an expressiveness in what I can only assume is the animatronic aspect of, of that final Brundle fly. Mm-hmm. That there's still like an emotion. You know, you could, and that, that scene is actually kind of pretty heartbreaking. It's pretty depressing. And like that being also the choice to make that also the final scene to not continue on mm-hmm. is one of the things I always love about Cronenberg. And rewatching this made me realize like Cronenberg knows how the fuck to like. I mean, this is edited by um, Ronald Sanders, um, but Cronenberg knows how to tell like a concise story, and you know, Ronald Sanders would go on to do most of his um, films. Mm-hmm. So, like the, the two of them working together. I mean, he, he you know edited History of Violence and Eastern Promises, um, and yeah, I think he did all of his. I think he's done all of his movies. Um, you know, 
there's nothing in here that is extraneous or unneeded. I'm like Doctor Sleeping. <laughs> yeah. Know, besides the entire existence of Doctor Sleep, <clears throat> and and it it works to create like that emotion. Everything works. It, it goes at such like a really consistently solid pace, mm-hmm. and you know the makeup effects kind of respond to that, and you know Jeff Goldblum's performance from kind of this like manic, but an eccentric, but ultimately kind of slight jerk, um, but but still very humanized well, in, in this slow descent yeah. into somebody who's not necessarily going crazy, but somebody who is transforming into in a different creature entirely mentally um, works so well and so consistently. Uh, you know, and that's that's the thing that like really drives this film for me is just it's so consistent. Mm-hmm. It it has this you know downward tragic sort of progression, um, and ultimately it's just a tragedy uh, of a, of a film um, that a lot of times and especially like in body horror um, or, or films of this I want to compare it to something that's a modern kind of like horror is like something like Slither, mm-hmm. you know, where like Michael it's a James Gunn movie. I don't know if you ever saw it. Um, mm-hmm. Like Michael Rooker uh, is like it's attacked by some sort of bug alien. It's kind of like a Night of the Creeps sort of tale, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's kind of inconsistent with his you know progression into like this monstrous alien being, mm-hmm. and that happens often in like people transforming into some sort of monster creature. This is so consistent and keeps him so human. And so grounded until he slowly isn't. But you do see that kind of blending together, that that slow metamorphosis of of two beings into one. Yeah. And like everything is working towards that ultimate goal, you know, from the performances, from, you know, the the screenplay, which is written by uh, Charles Edward Pogue and Cronenberg, um, to, you know, ultimately to the makeup effects, uh, as it slowly progresses to that like great final true transformation where everything just melts off and he becomes this animatronic sort of fly. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's like a testament to Cronenberg. I don't think we've talked, we don't talk enough about Cronenberg because Cronenberg went through like that really brief period where he was a very, very significant, like modern director. Like not, I'm not talking about the fly in, 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 you know, the other movies I'm talking about like the history of violence, um, Eastern promises kind of era. Um, where, like he his his we all thought his style changed because he wasn't doing the fly anymore. He was doing like more human things. But I think the thing that is to keep in mind with thinking about Cronenberg, and I think the fly is a really good example, um, is that even when like when she tells him that she's pregnant, and he is he is pretty far down the rabbit hole there, <laughs> and he wants her to have that baby. And part of me is just kind of like, well, clearly she's not going to have that baby. But his character is so consistently strange, like, through the whole thing, that you're just like, well, maybe he would ask, like, he would want her to have the baby. And, like, I know he, she wants, he wants her to have the baby because he wants to meld the... I think he wants... I the think, perfect family. Yeah, or he... There's the impression that he wants to have that baby because... um he needs his like genetic code. I feel like they said I, I like think, he needs a genetic I, code. He needs like to 
to get the more to get the fly out of his genetic code, he needs to splice himself with something that has more of his genetic code, so he needs a baby. But I also think he just kind of wants to have a baby, and he's such a weirdo that you're kind of like, well, maybe he does want a baby, and that makes him like way more human than he has at that point in the movie any right we have any right to feel about him mm. um we should not feel any sympathy for him but when he melts john gets his hand you're kind of like all right yeah john's gonna get out of here you have it you know that coming. Oh, oh yeah you you are still going after i melted your hand i'm gonna melt your shin now <laughs> in the grossest like vomit scene ever in the history of movies um yeah, it's... you always talk about bad vomit in films. By the way, that's this is not bad vomit. <laughs> this is great. I mean, the two best vomit scenes ever are. I mean, I feel like this vomit because it's just disgusting, and the mouth and the face that it comes out of is horrifying, and the shape of the mouth is yeah. just. What's the what you said? One of the two great. What's the other one? Oh, Team America. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> Do you remember going to see Team America in, the, in theaters? Yeah. Were you also the only person who like? was having a real hard time not laughing during the vomit scene. What do you mean not? not everyone, laughing? no one laughed except for me, and I was fucking dying. Oh, I was. everyone was laughing. At oh, my, my God. Nobody was laughing except for me. And like I was people, like, this is the like funniest went, thing I've ever seen. Like, people laughed at first, and has it kept going on? Like, it's the, exa- like the prime example of comedy being going too far to a point where it stops being funny, and then you go past that point. Um, that's like the... <sighs> The textbook kind of filmmaking 101 example of comedy right there. I have that. And that was a movie. So people like laugh, stop laughing, and then just were like destroyed for like yeah. a good two minutes. Um, that was. You drunk it out. <laughs> the, woman, <gasps> the woman just yelling at it. Oh, man. I have the way that puppet just shaking is like, you know, imprinted in my memory <laughs> forever while just liquid flies out of it. Uh, that almost made my list because of that scene. It almost made my list too. Because of that scene. I mean, it was like, I think it's like my 10, like, like 111 or something. Oh, like really? 112, yeah. Matt Damon. <laughs> Stupid Matt Damon. We'll talk about him next week. Um, but yeah, so do you, do you have, I mean, so you have the three. I know what your three are. Like, how does, like, do you. Oh, okay. That's where I'm going to talk about Matt Damon. I was sitting here going, like, why the fuck are we going to be talking about Matt Damien next week? Did I say next week? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did say next week. I just Ford said versus, it. Because of Ford versus Ferrari. Ford versus Ferrari. Which not, not because of either movie on our list. Because I was sitting there going, like, what the fuck <laughs> am I missing right now? I've seen both of these movies <laughs> like multiple times. times. He's just there. He's just in there. <laughs> you don't see him, but he's there. He's hovering over both projects. <laughs> he hovered over every mid-90s movie. Just he's hiding in the fireplace in the in the in that one scene. Um, he's in the background of the shop, <laughs> eating a crawler. He's the guy throwing. <laughs> he's the guy throwing the firecrackers. <laughs> he's just heavily made up. Um, yeah, I. It's weird because I, I used to find this stuff really gross. Like I, I found it, like the fly too gross to watch. And I actually mentioned to my dad that we were watching the fly, and he was like, "Oh, that movie's so gross." And I was like, "It is kind of gross, but it's also kind of awesome." And I think it's because like you could attach this to the Doctor Sleep thing, where we just kind of don't do cool, like real things anymore. Or when we do, <clears throat> it's attached to something that's so benign in its overall yeah. existence. Beyond that, like it, 
is like I forgot I was listening. I was listening to some like a Chris Stockman review or whatever. Um, Quasi review. That guy. That guy really doesn't review movies. I enjoy his charisma, but man, he's, he's a YouTube <laughs> guy. Um, but he says like we'll do like the practical effects, but it's in service of like nothing else. Mm-hmm. And this is like in service of you know literally stripping away a person's humanity. You know, and, yeah. Like, like there's other parts that are kind of just gross, like the hand being melted or the arm breaking scene, um, are kind of kind of there as like shocking moments. I even say like the arm breaking scene is more just like uh, an assertion of like kind of like sexual. Yeah, that's dominance. why he just gets out his his eyes go. He doesn't even really seem to care. He's just like I did it. I did. I won. <laughs> no, it's his, like Jeff Goldblum's face is there is less like oh shit. It's more like yeah, I won. Yeah, I told. I fucking told you. Hmm? No, that's the. Um, it's. It makes you feel. They're practical effects that are designed to make you feel something. They're not there just. And that's like the thing. I like this movie more than I like the thing because the stuff in the thing is just kind of like cool. Yeah. It's cool. It's like it looks a little shocking. Whatever. Fun. This is designed to put like it's, emotional yeah. ideas in your head, and it's and it works, and it shouldn't work because it's so weird, and it shouldn't work because it's so dated. But it still yeah, and really it's, does. It's it's it's, uh, it's like. And like, like I speak about consistency and timing, it's like after Seth reveals that plan to Ronnie and, you know, she rips off his jaw. Yeah. Uh, like that is his final transformation into not human. You mm-hmm. know, like this desperate plea, this this idea of yeah. like this so utterly inhuman thing is almost like it is almost like his expression of this plan is is more the thing that finally completes the transformation Less, you know, more so than just like it being physiologically it was going to happen, but just the fact that he spiritually says this thing and like expresses this awful thing is what makes him no longer a man. Well, it's just great because you can you could read into you could read a metaphor into that stuff if you really wanted to. You know what I mean? Mm. Like you can look at it and say, like he's been kind of cloistered from society his whole life. He's been like an outcast. He's weird. Like he works by himself, and you know this abandoned looking warehouse type thing or whatever. And, you know, then she rejects him. Like the person that was kind of, he thought was going to not reject him. That hadn't been rejecting him, like rejects him. And then he becomes like totally something else. Um, is that there? I don't know. Like part of me also really wanted to like make an abortion analogy. Um, but I don't think that's actually there. Yeah. I don't, I don't think so. I just thought it would be cool. I don't think Mel Brooks would have signed off on that. I, I'm not sure about that, Mario. I'm sure he would have. He probably, don't, you, don't you love that he produced this? Yeah, but it makes a lot of sense. He probably <laughs> yeah. thought it was hilarious. Yeah. Which is which is actually true. There are some like great moments of comedy. In like this. when his teeth fall out? Or like, yeah, exactly. When his like, teeth fall out? Or, <sighs> or just the coffee scene where he's like excitedly like explaining how his atoms have been cleansed like this new age yeah, yeah, yeah new wave sort of idea of like you know i'm just like pure now and like you just see ronnie kind of staring at him has his cup and like the camera keeps going back to the coffee to show you how fuck like how much sugar there is sugar yeah. there is in it you know and it's like just like somebody who's come so out of touch with reality at that point well and he just you know, how he keeps wanting people to go in the machine so they could keep up with him. He wants to be. He wants to be part of something. He doesn't want to be alone anymore. He's, yeah. you know, um, but yeah. I mean, all the reaction shots after he does like his the exercises are really kind of the best thing Jeff Goldblum ever did with his face. <laughs> it's just curiosity plus amazement, um, plus like a weird confidence. Like, yeah, I could, 
I could do all the gymnastics things. I could do them all. And he doesn't even realize that Ron is watching him. He's just like, huh? 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 it's great. They probably just shot that incognito. Jeff Goldblum's probably just doing all that shit himself. He's got the body for it, man. He's got the body for it. it and his pants good. are all the way up past his belly button. That's how you wear pants, right? I think so. When you, especially when you're going to jump into the plasma pool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. All right. We'll be right back with uh, Tom's very similar number 41. <laughs> Welcome back. Um, I have seen my number 41 movie probably more times than I should have. Um, and every time I watch it, my affection for it grows deeper and deeper, which I, I'm i assuming from a society standpoint is a weird thing to say about this movie. Um, it is Lars von Trier's 2009 film Antichrist. Imagine you arrive at Eden through the woods. Tell me what you see. Darkness comes early down here. I heard a sound. The cry of all the things that are to die. Ground is burning. The ground is not burning. I've just been having a lot of crazy dreams. <laughs> Do you love me? Help me. I think that pretty much says everything you needed to know about <laughs> about this movie. Um, there's two characters. There is um, a male and a female character. They are played by Willem Dafoe and Charlotte Gainsbourg. Um, that's pretty much it for characters. You know, there's a couple people floating around in other scenes. There's a there's a baby um, in it too. We see him mostly in flashbacks because at the very beginning of the movie, the baby falls out a window while his parents are having very passionate sex in the bathroom, in the shower, on the, on the scale, on the sink, then move over to the bed. Um, one of like the more, I mean, it's twisted, but one of the more beautiful like sequences of opening. Of the... It's hard for me, Mario. Um, because I had a kid a year after this, and this is normally something that I would openly reject to ever having seen. And I think I did for a while. Like, I really kind of couldn't couldn't process it. Um, but I can't not watch it, because it's kind of... It's amazing. It's weirdly amazing. This movie has a weird power over me. Do you ever have... Do you have movies like that, that, like... You don't. You can't really say why, but like you just kind of want to keep watching them like over and over and over again. Like I want to re-see things from this movie constantly. Yeah, nothing to <clears throat> nothing. That's anti, like anti. Right, right? nothing. Like, <laughs> which is a, which is like a big deal. Like so, when I watch this movie again, you know, we we have the. It's on the Criterion. Um, it's a Criterion movie, so it's on the Criterion channel. Um, I couldn't watch it like at night while everyone in my house was sleeping because I just felt weird about it. Like, I was like, I don't want to expose, like, anybody in my house to this. Except for the fact that I kind of do want to expose everybody to certain parts of this really insanely beautiful movie. So these two people, the baby falls out the window and um, Charlotte Gainsbourg characters goes through a tremendous um, grieving process in which she is uh, institutionalized. Um, 
but her husband is a therapist and thinks he knows better than her doctors, so he brings her home and tries to do a kind of exposure therapy where the things that really make her afraid and that are producing like this anxiety in her, um, he exposes her to them and through that he will cure her. And the her, I don't know why I said cure. Um, and the thing she says that she's most afraid of, or the place that she says she feels most exposed is, is this cabin in the woods um, that they call Eden. Um, and so they go there. And then there's we get some, you know, through some flashbacks, we get all these scenes about why she might have had a problem being there. But in between, when they're on the train on their way to wherever Eden is, it's supposed to take place in Washington, but I believe it was filmed in Sweden or Denmark. Yeah, I do it because he never... Like, he doesn't leaves. travel, yeah, but it was one of those countries. There is... Germ- Germany, looks like. Oh, Germany. There is the most amazing... When they're on the train and he's, he's like, oh, you should prepare yourself for when you're going to get... For when you get there. He, and he you know, asks her to pay, imagine herself going to Eden in... in Imagine, tell her, tell him what she's doing. And at the time, I hadn't seen anything like it, um, which is the ultra slow motion of like a backlit Charlotte Gainsbourg walking across that bridge. And then the slow motion of her like descent into that kind of blighted looking forest with all the fog. And then that ultra slow motion shot from the foxhole. Um, where it's just foggy and it's just roots and trees, and it is completely and utterly mesmerizing. I'm not sure who's... I mean, he couldn't have made it up. I don't think it's a technique that he that he made it up, but now he uses it all the time. Um, when he was in his Dogma 95 stuff, he was he didn't use it ever. Like, he didn't use it in Breaking the Waves. Um, he didn't use it in Dancer in the Dark. I don't think he... He didn't use it in Dogville or Manderley, I don't think, although I haven't seen all of Manderley. Um but in, in 2009, he comes out with Antichrist, and now this is what he does. I mean, the whole amazing scene, ending scene of the house that Jack built that, you know, takes place, his descent into hell, is punctuated with these ultra-slow motion, sh- like, perfectly composed and lit, painting-like shots of, you know, Matt Dillon and... and um, um, what's his name? Now I can't uh, think Bruno of it. Um you know, dis- their descent into hell. Um, Verge. It blew my fucking mind. It blew my mind. I can't even really express it enough. A lot of, you know, they, they go through some therapy things. There's some revelations about, like, certain aspects of what she's she's supposed to be have do, been doing research on um, um, uh, the, the killing of witches, the killing of women. Um, some revelations come out. Some things happen. And then... Some of the most awful, violent shit in movies happens to these two people. Um, and I guess we'll get there when we talk about it. Um, and I don't... And I don't care. Like, it should I, should... I should be pushed away from it. And a lot of people were really pushed away from this film. But every time I watch it, I just get... I want to go deeper into it it's like and i was thinking about this when i was thinking about the you know preparing for this episode it is like a not like it's like a novel that you've read a bunch of times but you kind of always keep finding like a sentence to kind of 
to kind of process that changes the way that you think about it. Um, and this is, this keeps happening for me, um, with this movie. And I've, since we started this podcast, I've watched it three times. Um, actually it's funny cause the file that I use for my list, cause I print, I, you know, I've been types things and I, I've been keeping a list. The first movie that I watched when we started doing this thing, the whole process was antichrist. Um, and so the file is actually just labeled Antichrist because it was just a whole page of notes about about Antichrist. Um, to the point where, like the 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 titles, those those handmade titles, um, and that score, which is there's not a lot of score, just kind of these this vaguely industrial, like boom, and then like some you know some groaning sounds. Um, It's just fascinating, and it does all the things that I want. I feel like I want movies to do, which is like create a visceral reaction in me for there to be like a mystery, not like a like a like a like a murder mystery. You know what I mean? Like a who done it, but like a sense that beyond this film is information that I need to have. Decoding the film will lead me towards like a greater understanding of, of like the universe. That's what this, I mean, that's for, for me, Antichrist seems to be that. And if I'm doing a bunch of research on Lars von Trier, I've tended to thinking that we had this conversation, it's like the same nature of the conversation we had about the house of Jack built. This seems vaguely autobiographical. This seems like a really large metaphor for a person who's struggling through Depression and anxiety, and I mean, and it's the first. Health. It's the first of his what depression? Yeah. Trilogy, so like, it's this one, melancholia, melancholia and then nymphomaniac. Still don't know nymphomaniac's connection. Like, nymphomaniac feels tonally so different. Well, so my, I feel like we had this kind of. I feel like I mentioned this during House of Jack, but my theory on it is that this is a struggle movie. Melancholia is a resignation movie, and nymphomaniac is a movie about when resignation doesn't lead to death. It doesn't fucking matter anymore. And oh, you perfect. just kind of you just tear the lid off your life, and you just try to kill yourself, however you feel like you can kill yourself, like you know physically or mentally. And he's not going to just it's so not like, going to be a series of things, but every every interaction that she has with one of those people is a way to kind of is a, a, like a self erasure. It's kind of like a post annihilation. Yeah, how you deal with yourself after annihilating yourself. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Um, to that point where like so, if you look at it. I, I, I want to hear you. What do you What do you think about it though? Before I go into like do, like decoding the mm. metaphor and stuff like that, keep going. Okay, but like, so if you look at it, you know, Willem Dafoe comes off as like you know he's a therapist. He's analytical. Like he's dispassionate. Um, he like seeks to control like this situation. Like his wife's grief can't. He kind of criticizes the way that his wife's grief is, is being treated. But in reality, it's because like he's not the prescriber. You know what I mean? He's not on the inside of this. He needs to control it. He needs to shape it. And then she is passionate and is emotional. At some point, at the end of that like unbelievably gorgeous like series of slow motion things, he asks her to melt into the into the green, into the grass, and she does. And it signals her relationship to um, the females that we're gonna see later. In the movie, you know the the bodies like 
twisted around the roots of that tree or yeah. the bodies twisted around like just piled inside the earth when Willem Dafoe walks away from the cabin after he's choked um you know Charlotte Gainsbourg to death um or the women that are climbing the hill in that most unbelievable like final one of the most unbelievable final scenes I've ever seen um or the animals that are that are there because they're all females also like two of them have given birth and they have they're like you know half misbirthed kids just like falling out of them like the one falling out of the deer and then like the fox like tearing it itself um i'm assuming the bird is probably also a mother as well um and there is an aligning of these two ideas where one of them is going to kill the other one. And then the more passionate one, the female, the one who can recognize in herself what makes her happy and what makes her sad, what gives her pleasure and what kills joy for her, um, reacts against her own happiness. So in the end, when she you know, which is just horrible. She, you know, cuts off her clitoris with a pair of scissors. Um, But right before that, she has that thought of her child falling out the window and she, and she sees it and she doesn't do anything about it because she's, she's in pleasure right then. So it's almost like she's, she's condemning herself for choosing pleasure over, over her son. But you also get the sense that, like, she maybe wanted that to happen. And she's recognizing something evil in herself, something innate in herself, in her own, um, her femaleness. You know, as, like, Willem Dafoe kind of confronts her about, um, in the movie, you're supposed to be doing research on how these people were killed and you're, and, like, you're, like, saying that they were evil. Um, and it's just like going to therapy. And you try to you try to murder an aspect of yourself to be a better person, but then in the end, he he murders that aspect of himself. But then all those things, like, cons- like just consume him at the end. He's standing on that hill, and then out of nowhere, those like totally faceless women just walk up and down the hill and 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 consume him. Um, and I think that's where you get to melancholia after that, which is where, like, well, what am I supposed to do here? You know what I mean? Like, I tried to do all these things to kill this this urge inside myself, to kill these these ideas, but I can't. They're just a part. They're they're just a part of me. I can't escape it. And I don't, I don't know. It just seems impossibly deep, and it seems I'm, I find like a tremendous amount of empathy for someone who, like, the culture says I should not have any empathy for. Um, in Lars von Trier, because he's an idiot in a lot of ways. Like he says stupid, he says stupid shit that I don't agree with. But I also think that he is like a suffering human being and is using his art as an outlet for his suffering, and to think about his suffering and to like almost play act ameliorating that suffering. Um, I don't know. It's just amazing. I mean, it's a, it's it's fucking hard to watch. But it's just, I find it, I, I'm spellbound by it every time I watch it.
Yeah, I, I, I often have a, I have an extremely difficult time watching this film. Um, in terms of something like House That Jack Built, which I kind of see kind of almost as like a, a sister feature to this, but a lot of the same kind of tonal mm-hmm. things it's doing in terms of controversy or in terms of perceived misogyny. Um, I feel similarities, but there's a certain kind of lightness at parts to House That Jack Built and, and comedy, mm-hmm. um, however dark, that... Uh, and. And, you know, pulling it still also pulling back at points, you know, like when it goes far, it goes, it's punctuated by breaths. Um, this, this is kind of unrelenting yeah. in, 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 you know, hauntingly beautiful shots. Like, you know, that, that tree shot you mentioned when they're having sex on the next gets the tree and you see the hands and all that, like that's just intensely both horrific and beautiful. Um, but it's 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 an unrelenting weight and force of a film. And the way I've I've always watched this is this like condemnation of the foe's character itself. Yeah, I feel like you know you know I see Lars von Trier in that he um, kind of masquerades against her guilt against Charlotte Gainsbourg's guilt. Like he 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 has such a clinical essence to it. It's mm-hmm. such a such a separated opinion of of her suffering that he feels like he can resolve it. Mm-hmm. And the thing I always found interesting is if her the, the thing he prods at her fear is nature, then why do they own a cabin <laughs> in the woods? You know, mm. why do they have this cabin that she went to? Um and it's always felt like there's, you know, even though she ends up like torturing him and, and traps him, it is this kind of gaslighting that mm. he does in many ways and and this 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 conviction that he does in the way he speaks to her and the way he treats her that kind of convinces her you know that that she has that kind of well essential evil inside of her that leads to her own like destruction of, yeah i don't want to say femininity a uh, man's interpretation of what would be the destruction of femininity yeah like a kind of st- a stereotypical list like i mentioned before of like the feminine archetype but be because right, Lars is a dude and yeah he's well, like oh clitoris is like what a woman but is, I think right? he's also trying to because it's a metaphor he's also like using very obvious signals like you know this is these are two halves of like a thing but like it's interesting that after in like the end of chapter two after she ends up kind of being cured, you know what I mean? Like, um, she has, like, a good night's sleep, and she comes out, and she's cured. She can, like, walk on the bridge. And he doesn't know what to do with her anymore. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, he's actually had very little, probably, to do with her being cured, or being cured, as it were. And he really, then he digs deeper into yeah, her psyche, and, yeah. and then he become, then he turns, like you said, he almost, it's almost like he gaslights her, but it almost seems like, from some of the evidence that they show about like her putting his like so, her son's shoes on backwards, like how that um, her manuscript, like the writing was really clear at first, and then like towards the end of it, like the writing was not even writing anymore. It's just kind of like a series of like weird symbols and things like that. Um, you get the impression that it's 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 a it's an it's like an innate thing, and she understand she understands it better than he does. She's maybe been mas she's been masquerading certain like aspects of her true nature to kind of fit in with like normal society, but she understands 
And I think that's where that child, the, the, the child cry, like it's the sound of everything dying. She understands better than he does, like how life works. You know what I mean? And how, yeah. and how nature, what nature really is, or in, like who we really are as people. And they are, we are unfortunate people as, pe- as people. We do very terrible things to each other. And, and you actually mentioned, like, as you said in the beginning, uh, asked me, like, is there a film I kind of keep coming back to and digging into? Uh, despite, like, if I find it, like, horrific or, or why I keep coming back to it. And um, for me, it's kind of a similar vein, but it's uh, William S. Burroughs' Naked Lunch. Mm. Like, that's an unpleasant read. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so many things in that that kind of feel like the true nature of what people would do. Yeah. When, especially when pushed to the brink of, of addiction or um, drug use or, or, or repressed sexuality. Um, that. It, it rings true and it rings like there's there's a deeper element of of showing showing something that fiction often tries to push to the the outside mm-hmm. you know um and, and that's the thing about this is like it feels it re, it's resoundingly true it's resoundingly earnest but it is an unpleasant experience like it, it never Relents, well, and, and like, and I guess that's kind of like almost the nice thing about as Von Trier has been going through this process. Almost, mm-hmm. it, it feels like his films are breathing more. Like even like House That Jack Built or Melancholia, despite like still being in the depths of like kind of the the, the sins and dredges yeah. of man. Not so much Melancholia, but uh, like that's more metaphor, you know, metaphorical in its mm-hmm. kind of nature. Um, but like House That Jack Built, it feels. Like there's a little more of an artifice and like kind of like a, a fiction to that. Well, that feels like there's a separation from what is like what he's been. But like that's like this almost was his like. It felt like this was like the depths of it, the true working out of right. Like, well, that's the whole. The I think that's the point of House at Jackville, isn't it? Like it's about it's about art. It's about yeah. that separation. It's about like this is not real life. This is just this is just art, and I can do anything I want, but it's still just like a movie. movie. Yeah. Um, but that's but the beautiful the like utterly breathtaking scenes in Antichrist are not the same breathtaking scenes as House at Jackbelt. Like, oh, absolutely not. The, you feel some relief from House at Jackbelt towards the end of it because you think he's going to get what he deserves, and then you start seeing some beautiful stuff. But you know he's going to hell. He gets denied the Elysian Fields. You know he cries. Um, he just goes all the way down. Um. Maybe goes further down than he was going to go in initially. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you get there's a there's a weight that's kind of lifted off of of what's expected of you as a viewer. Like as you get closer to the end of the movie, and I mean he's just going to shoot those five people in the head. Like after everything he's done to everybody, like you've seen him do to everybody else, that's like the best possible outcome that like the, <laughs> that those people can expect, because so many people got it so much worse than they are going to get it. Um, and the cops are coming, but it's. I think what you said is is really like how it's. I, the movies that really in the art that really kind of speaks to me. Are the movies that, kind of, push away that, like the artifice and just try to deal with like a, like a some kind of a truth, even if they're doing it crazily or surreally or, like really obliquely metaphorically um it's like you know we're both really kind of excited to see the painted bird 
later at some point. And I feel like like the Kaczynski book in and of itself, I think, speaks to an aspect of like World War Two that people don't really and, think. And a lot of the reviews for Painted Bird kind of paint it in a similar light as yeah. this and as um, like House That Jack Built. Mm-hmm. I think people try to portray like aspects of life as too controlled and too preordained and too premeditated when in reality life is like super chaos. And that's that's the thing about this film. That's almost a like beyond kind of the startling imagery. It is so erratic in in it as it progresses. Yeah. Like it becomes increasingly disjointed mm-hmm. of a film. It becomes just a series of, at points there there's still a narrative being told, but it becomes an increasingly a scene of of startling imagery but then kind of disjointed thoughts and disjointed kind of like yeah like um, because it, it discordant it just becomes extremely discordant well you get like the too long scene of her like beating at that hole mm-hmm, yeah. you know what i mean where like it doesn't seem like that was edited properly only because like it seems to last way longer than like a scene previously would have or like it it stops being even kind of realistic when she's like oh i can't find the wrench and then he just happens to be lying on the like floor of the of the cabin, like and he oh and he hears a loose board and he elbows it through and like oh there's the wrench right there you know yeah. what I mean like these things just kind of start cropping up that make it feel more dreamlike and less realistic, um, but I think that's okay. Um, but it's just hard. It's just it's a hard movie. It doesn't always. I I find it impossibly gorgeous and, and impossibly deep, but it doesn't make me feel good. Um, it yeah, like it's a hard, never makes it's a hard me one feel to ever recommend. It's like, it's like you gotta prepare yourself. If you know, watch Breaking the Waves or um, would you, you know, ever say before. to somebody you should watch Breaking the Waves? You know, it's a good movie, Breaking the Waves. No, but I'm saying like you don't start with with this. <laughs> if if you're jumping into the von Trier kind of oeuvre, I always wonder if I'm saying that word. Oprah I think it's oeuvre. Oeuvre, right. yeah. You don't jump into to the, the filmography of. Large you don't jump into the start with this. Von Trier plasma pool. You start with like Dogville, I guess. Yeah, you start with Dogville because it's got the most famous people in it. But it's like the most like accessible, almost even of his films. Yeah, despite the fact that it's all done There's on a no soundstage, yeah. and just with tape, and everyone's shitting all over Nicole Kidman for the whole movie. But it's like at least a, it's at least like a. I don't know. Imagery wise, it's not hard. It's 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 emotionally hard, but not. I think that it's, it's funny. not an assault on all senses. And I don't think we need to. I don't think I like necessarily need. But I think forty one is interesting here because there's movies higher up on my list that make me feel shitty, but they don't make me feel shitty in the way that this movie makes me feel. This movie reveals like aspects. Eighteen, your eighteen makes you feel a little shitty. Movie we already talked about recently. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, but like there's parts. You know, there's parts of my number one that make me feel like total garbage. Oh. Parts, but like not, but like not in like um, why am I doing this way? In like an emotional, like like if you did something bad to someone you love, type of way. You know what I mean? Oh, Where it's exactly. like it's like wrinkling your heart, and it. But no, that's, that's your number one does that always. But that's th- I mean, but to me that stuff is thrilling. Like that's just mm. a movie. Like this isn't this isn't actually happening to me. It's just a movie. But your it's, number one's like a washboard. It's like, oh, get in it. all the... I can't out. even fucking take that movie. That movie, so you remember how you said, like, after a certain point in one of the movies we're going to talk about, we talked about earlier in the week, or I guess, oh, in Jojo Rabbit, how you were just kind of like, like, that's it? Like, mm-hmm. you just... 
that movie, it's like very early on in the movie. And I'm just like, it's just like right here. Like there's just tears, like just always behind my face for the, <laughs> for like the whole thing. Uh, but yeah, Antichrist, Mario. That's the last Von Trier movie. Yeah. That we'll talk about on this podcast. Unless he puts out another movie, which I don't think he's going to. No, he will. Just... I mean, but not in, like in the next year or so. We might still be doing this podcast, though. Like I said, there's other pivotal things to talk it about. It looks like we're going to be we're set up to end this thing in 2021. We're going for another... We're going to do another Oscar podcast after 2019. And, and there's a Paul Thomas Anderson movie coming out in 2021. Is there? Yeah, he's doing like a 1970s high school movie. Ugh, fuck. I can't take this shit, man. Why's I got to do this stuff? Man, I think our new twos movie comes out in 2021. Is that like a 1960s high school movie? It's a, it's yeah, it's um a separate piece. Oh my god! <laughs> Could you imagine if he did a separate piece? I, I mean, it would be amazing. I don't want to see that. Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hardy, de-aged. <laughs> DiCaprio actually breaks his leg and dies from getting yeah. bone marrow into his bloodstream. And Tom Hardy just does the uh, the Revenant voice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he, just, he just comes right off the Peaky Blinders set. <laughs> It'll be good. All right. That's it. Anything else? Well, if you have some opinions about Lars Ron Trier, you can tweet us those opinions at twitter.com slash film pivotal. Or you can send us. I always like how you do this breath. This breath of like, I got to do this shit. I really. It's funny because yeah. when I started doing. When I feel like we should just pre record this and just. I know. We should. <laughs> but it's also. People expect it to be extemporaneous. Just increasingly yeah. going like, ah. Oh. Um. Yeah, send an email to pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com if you have Lars von Trier thoughts. Just if you have Lars von Trier thoughts. Yeah, if you have any thoughts, don't tell No us. one has said any thoughts about anything, so we literally just want to hear Lars von Trier thoughts. Or you can go to pivotalfilm.com, and there's a, a, a list of the movies um, that we've talked about, and a list of the beers that we drank, and how to subscribe to the podcast, and how to get to our Twitter. Um, but yeah, we're going to, you know, more new movies next week. 40 is a big one. 40s of 40 is going to be huge. It's going to be a long one. Um, so yeah, next week. Uh, until next week, see you movie. Here's a beer. Here's a beer.